Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, part A. Last week, we got a brief overview of the Sermon on the Mount, and we learned that it is a message to followers of Jesus Christ. It's not a way to be saved. It's not only a description of life in the future kingdom, as others say that it is. This is how God wants Christians to live here and now in this broken world. Today we get into this sermon that Jesus preached, and it begins with the Beatitudes. This is Jesus explaining the way to the blessed life. Now, this is a really important subject. I think you'll think so too, right? Have you ever wondered how to be happy? Has anybody ever wondered that? I would bet that most of you, if not all of you, are somewhat on the pursuit daily of happiness because that's what we do as humans, right? I mean, are you pursuing happiness in life? Some of you are like, I'm pursuing holiness, not happiness. <laughs> yeah. That's what humans are created for. We, we all have this tendency, we all have this inner thing that we, we know life is supposed to be good and blessed. Like we read in this devotional this morning, we all have a taste of the Garden of Eden in us. That's where we came from. And we all have this understanding, we all have this feeling like life should be good, like we should have some sort of joy, like happiness should be part, you know, of life. Now, maybe, I don't know, teenagers, you go through this phase where you're like, I'm never happy, I hate life, but you grow out of that. Jesus is going to tell us in this message today and continuing next week how to be happy. Really, how to live the blessed life. I want to know how to live the blessed life. And so if you do too, you're in the right place because Jesus Christ himself from his word is going to tell us how we can live the blessed life. And I've titled today's message, as you saw there, Happy Christians. And I think it's a very fitting title. And as we go through, you'll see why. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and read verse 1 of chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We're going to stop there today. We're just going to take this in two parts. Partially because, you know, well, the reason is, is because it's such a serious thing. It's such a serious thing to know how to live as a Christian, right? I can tell you from firsthand example of my own life, I'll give you my own testimony, I pursued ways to be happy that were maybe sometimes happy for a little while, but ended up always to be empty or just not completely satisfying. I'm still missing something, right? There's songs about it on the radio all the time, aren't there? I want something else. You guys remember that one? Uh, how about this other one for the ladies out there? Am I standing still? There's all these songs about this restless, like I need to get up out of this life and I'm missing something, right? And every one of these things that I chose in my life that I thought was going to bring satisfaction brought emptiness. Now, you might be able to relate with that today. And if you can't, I think you should take notes because at some point in life, you're going to. Now, to be blessed or blessed, as Jesus said, 
We must realize that we have nothing to offer God spiritually. We must mourn over our sinful condition and that of the world. And we must intensely desire the perfect righteousness of God above all other things in our lives. And that's what you're going to see in this message here today. The outline is very simple. Two parts. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus prepares to teach. Verses 3 through 6, Beatitudes 1 through 4. Jesus prepares to teach, verse 1, and seeing the multitudes. Jesus' miracles had drawn a great crowd at this point, right? Remember from Matthew chapter 4, the end, it says, Great multitudes followed him all the way from the Jordan, beyond the Decapolis, Syria, Jerusalem. And these people in this crowd, it was all walks of life, right? Um, men, women, up, down, all around, um, poor, well off, everything were following Jesus. So I think it's kind of fascinating to read how he addresses such a diverse crowd, kind of like us here and today, right? Diverse crowd of people. You know, some of you are doing well, some of you aren't, some of you are happy, some of you are not, some of you are empty, some of you are filled, right? But Jesus addresses this whole crowd with this message, right? And in this message, what we find are the very principles of life, the very basics of life. God is the creator and the creator is good, and he's teaching his creation here how to live life, what life is all about. Now, he went up onto a mountain. I brought a picture now, traditionally, this today, if you go to Israel, uh, I haven't been there. I want to go there. My wife really wants to go there. Um, if you go there, you'll be taken on a tour to the Mount of Beatitudes. That's where they believe that the Sermon on the Mount was given. A uh, little disclaimer, all the places where they think things happened, sometimes those aren't accurate at all. Constantine's wife actually brought a whole bunch of them in, and they, they could just be touristy sort of things. So don't put too much in that. But... For what it's worth, this is probably the place. This is what it looked like. And so it's not really a mountain over here. We're up here. Uh, you know, it's, it's more of a hillside. So it's not like, they, you know, we're on a big trek up the mountain. And he goes up this mountain, good place where his voice could carry to hundreds or even thousands of hungry hearts. Then he was seated, it says. And that was the typical position of a teacher in those days. They, the teacher was seated normally and the hearers stood up and I can see some sort of benefit in that for me. I want to sit down. No, I don't like sitting down. I'm too anxious. I'm too, I'm too into it to sit, you know. But you had to probably have something good to say, though, right? People wouldn't stand around all day unless it was good, right? So as he's seated, and look at what it says there. His disciples came to him. Now, this is not only the 12 that you're familiar with. This is disciples in a broad sense, Okay, um, we know this because when you turn to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it says, the people were astonished. People meaning a whole group, a big group of people. So these people that had made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, probably a large number at this point, they came up to him as he was sitting up here to hear what he had to say. Okay, and this brings up a good question that I've heard before, and maybe you've heard this. Are all Christians disciples? Is there a difference between a Christian and a disciple? Are there two different types of Christians? Has anybody ever heard that question before or thought it yourself? Well, there's no difference between a Christian and a disciple. The word Christian came along in the book of Acts. You can read about it. When they were in Antioch, they were first called Christians. In fact, it was probably a derogatory term. And what it means is those who belong to Christ. Right? So the word Christians, derogatory, you know, it was a derogatory term given to those that belonged to Christ. Right? So today there's no difference between a disciple and a Christian. 
You know, and there are people that kind of think that they say, oh, I'm not a disciple. I'm a Christian. I just go to church and I just kind of, I'm real casual. I'm on the outskirts of all this whole thing. But those people that serve, they're like disciples. I'm not into that, you know. Well, that's not a biblical concept. In fact, let me read what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about it. All true Christians and the ones not in name only will have to be a disciple of Christ as well. That is, he has counted the cost and has totally committed his life to following Jesus. He accepts the call to sacrifice and follows wherever the Lord leads. The Christian disciple completely adheres to the teachings of Jesus. He makes Christ his number one priority and lives accordingly. He is actively involved in making other Christian disciples as well. Now, that's the description of a disciple or of a Christian. And it says then, verse 2, that he opened up his mouth and taught them. Now, I think this is cool. We learn a lot of stuff by Jesus' example, don't we? We read how he dealt with um, the lepers, how he dealt with the sinners. And we, we see, like, we get this vision into these scenes in the Bible. It's kind of like a movie or something, right? We get this look at how he behaved. But here, we get to learn not only from his example, but we get to learn what he said. Now, I think that's fascinating, right? The Bible's the Word of God, but this is the Word of God from the mouth of God. This is really exciting to me, right? So, of all the words ever spoken regarding life and how it should be lived, these are the words of God telling you how to live. Aren't there a lot of words in this world today telling you how you should live? I mean, all you got to do is start a YouTube channel today, and you can be uh, just like, who knows who you are? You, you know, you could have like whatever, and get us following on YouTube and start telling people how to live their life, you know? Or you can write a book. You can write chicken soup for the woman's soul. And you're like, where do you get this stuff from? And, the, and you find out the guy's like, you know, who knows what the, you know, where this stuff's coming from. Or you can watch Oprah and she can tell you what to do. And uh, apparently she has quite a big audience, you know, look at uh, her ratings and all that stuff. All the words in this world about how to live. Anything any psychologist could ever say, anything any psychiatrist could ever say, Nothing compares to the words of what God can say to your life today. And I hope as a Christian that you put way more into this than you put into any other source of, uh, you know, so-called knowledge that there is in this world, right? So we're going to learn today what Jesus says about living. Now, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount is this section called the Beatitudes, right? And it's easy to understand the word to split it into two things, right? What is it? Be attitudes. Are you guys awake here? Hello? Hello? Be attitudes. Anna knows. She was here for that. These are the attitudes that you should be like if you're a Christian. Now, right away, I want to say the Sermon on the Mount isn't like a, a list of things that you and I can do perfectly. It's not. But as a Christian, you have the life of God inside of you, and that life of God inside of you can live like this, Right? The spirit inside of you, the new creation that you are in Christ can live like this, but there's a problem. Your flesh is still in there. So you can do this for a little while, and, but you can't do it perfectly because your flesh wins the day a lot of times, you know? Unfortunately, we're in this battle between sin and the new life that's inside of us. Praise God, hallelujah, when you die, that'll be over with, you know? I mean, you'll die physically, but then you'll go and you'll be delivered from that whole battle between flesh and spirit. So before we even get in this, don't think of this as like, oh, I'm going through these things and I'm not living up to God's standard and I'm a terrible Christian. Listen, you can't live up to God's standard. The only person that could ever live these things perfectly was who? Yeah, Jesus. Okay, that got more of a response. That's good. You better say his name, right? Awesome. Praise the Lord. 
And so we look to him, we see this is how we're supposed to live, and we aim at this. Just because we can't reach the standard, it doesn't mean as Christians that we throw it out. It means that we keep aiming for it, but yet we receive his grace and mercy as we fall, right? But then we keep aiming at the same standard, because the standard is Christ. And so I want you to understand that before we get into here. One more thing that we need to understand. Look at the word, um, the first word of verse 3. Blessed. Now, let's talk about that word just for a second. The Greek word translated blessed, it's difficult to translate into English. Um, It incorporates the meaning of wholeness, of joy, of well-being, of happiness. Now, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount in different translations, the Living Bible, um, you know, different translations, uh, J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of the New Testament, oh, how happy is the man that is poor in spirit. Oh, how happy. That's how a lot of them translate it because it has the idea of happiness. So when Jesus is going through here saying, blessed is this man, this, blessed that, blessed that, he's saying happy, fulfilled, whole is the person. Blessedness implies an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that does not depend upon outward circumstances. An inward satisfaction, an inward joy, an inward happiness that doesn't depend on anything going on around you. Now, right away, you're challenged. You're like, holy cow, you can have this even though life is falling apart around you? Yes. Yes, you can. That's what Jesus is saying. He's going to give the description of the blessed life. That person that has joy, that's not, it's not depending on the circumstances in their life. To put it real simply, blessedness just means truly happy. Now let me ask you a question. Are you truly happy? I think that's a good question. Are you truly happy? Do you have true joy consistently in your life? I mean, have you ever, when's the last time you stopped long enough to think about that? When's the last time you ever just turned off your phone, turned off the TV, turned off the music, turned off the video games? When's the last time that you ever turned off everything, sat there and really thought about it for a second and thought, am I truly happy? Now, some, of, some people think about that too often, maybe. But maybe you haven't thought about that enough. Maybe you don't like to think about that because it uncovers some things that you don't want to deal with. But Jesus is going to tell us today how to have true happiness, how to be truly joyful, truly happy. I ran into this quote from an atheist about Christians and... Um, Let me read it to you. You Christians seem to have a religion that makes you miserable. You're like a man with a headache. He doesn't want to get rid of his head, but it sure hurts him to keep it. And the person goes on and says, you can't expect outsiders to seek very earnestly for anything so uncomfortable. Now that is unfortunately too often a true statement about Christians. They don't, you say, You want me to come follow Christ because it's the blessed life, but look at your life. You're going around, you're miserable all the time. Why would I want to do that? And it's unfortunate because Jesus offers true joy 
And the world needs to see the true happiness that comes from being in an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. If that stirred you up when I asked you if you're happy today, I want to invite you right now, just put all your defensiveness aside and all your pain and all your sorrows and all the, all the baggage or whatever it is, put all that aside and let the words of Christ minister to you because your life can change. Your life can certainly change and he wants to change your life. He wants to give you this. When Jesus spoke these words, he was telling his listeners how they could be deeply, spiritually, and profoundly happy and how they could maintain this happiness even in the midst of disappointments and hard times, says James Montgomery Boyce in his excellent commentary. Now, the Beatitudes tell us how to experience happiness, so here we go. Verse 1, or verse 3, Beatitude number 1. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, deeply, spiritually, profoundly happy are the poor in spirit. Now, the word poor that's used here, it's a word for terribly poor. This is like beggar poor, right? Now, first of all, I want to talk about what this does not mean. What this does not mean is that there's some sort of inherent blessing in being materially or financially poor. He's not saying, blessed are the financially poor. There's no inherent blessing in being financially poor. In fact, I've met more financially poor people that are obsessed with money than I have ever met rich people that are obsessed with money. And that's a true story. And I've been around a lot of rich people in my life in Southern California that could take it or leave it with money, but I've met more people that are materially poor, that are constantly obsessed about money than I've ever met, you know, on the other side of that. So there's no blessing. There's no blessing in just being materially poor. That's not what he's saying here. And you think about it too. Why would God command Christians to alleviate the poverty of the poor if in effect we were taking their blessing away from them, right? If that's what he was saying was, blessed are the materially poor, he wouldn't say, go minister to the poor then. He'd leave them alone. They're the blessed ones, right? And plus, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the poor. Look at what he says there. He says, blessed are the poor in what? Right? Like the financially poor have no resources to buy anything that costs money, the spiritually poor realize they have no resources to buy anything from God. That's what he's talking about. I realize that I have nothing to offer God for my salvation. I have nothing to offer God spiritually. I can't say, oh, God, I'm a pretty good guy. I do a whole bunch of good works. I hold the door for everybody at the store. And I've, heck, I've even given some money to charity. No, I have nothing to offer God. And Jesus says this is where it all starts. Happy are those who realize they have nothing to offer God. Right? They're poor. They're poor in spirit. The opposite, you know, is, doesn't the world teach the opposite of this? The world's attitudes are, you know, self-praise, self-esteem, self-assertion. Um, that's what the world's teaching us today. This is the opposite of that. The world is teaching people, like, if you take your kids, for instance, to a counselor, or, you know, the, the message is the whole counseling psychology realm today is based on kids needing self-esteem. That's what the whole thing's about. Oh, they're just, they just don't have high enough self-esteem. you got to boost them. Jesus says the opposite. Jesus says those who realize that they are desperate sinners in need of a Savior, those are the people that are happy. 
And it's, man, you know it's true in your life. The people that are like Stuart Smalley, like, gosh darn it, I'm good enough and people like me, and they're looking in the mirror and they're trying to boost themselves up with their affirmations, those are the most miserable people I've ever met in my life, truth be told. Because you're not meant for that. You're meant to deny self and to put all of it under Christ and to put all of, all of you know, God is supposed to be the center of your life, not you, right? Now, turn to Luke chapter 18. I want to show you something. I'm going to show you an example of this, a biblical example. A biblical example of somebody that's poor in spirit. There's a difference between self-esteem and Christ-esteem. I feel great about who I am because God made me and because God saved me and because I'm his treasure and because I'm his creation. That's the opposite of thinking self-esteem. You know, I don't think I'm all that great. I think God's all that great, Right? And I, and I don't have issues with self-esteem anymore. I used to have issues with self-esteem. Oh, why can't I be buffer? Why can't I look better? Oh, my ears are too big. Oh, I had buck teeth when I was a kid. Oh my gosh, I have a mole right here that's like a birthmark. I used to try to hide it. I'd wear three shirts and be like, ugh. People are like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, oh, nothing, you know? And so I was so self-conscious all the time. The problem was I was so obsessed with myself, you know, and not with God. Once I put my mind on God, all that stuff went away. It didn't even matter anymore. True story. Luke chapter 18, let's see an example of somebody that's poor in spirit. Verse 9 of Luke 18, and he spoke, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. The way this guy is praying is he's saying, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like the rest of these sinners. In fact, I do all kinds of religious stuff. I go to church. I read the Bible. I pray. I put money in the box. I do all these things. God, thank you that I'm so righteous. Now, look at this. Verse 13. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone, listen, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Being poor in spirit is realizing who you are next to God, not next to other people. You want to know the greatest barrier? One of the greatest barriers to coming to a place of being poor in spirit it's that we gauge ourselves next to other humans rather than next to God, right? You think you're pretty righteous today, right? You think that you're doing pretty well. You look at your past life and you see how much of a mess you were and you see how great you're doing now and you think you're doing pretty well, right? Well, here's the problem. You're gauging yourself next to you in your own past life or other people or your neighbor or the person. Or maybe you think, well, I have my Bible open in this church, but the person in the row behind me, they don't even bring a Bible with them. Hmm, really? Well, the problem is you're gauging yourself next to people and next to God. Because if you put yourself next to God, you will realize quickly how poor in spirit you are. You'll realize that you're a hopeless sinner in need of a savior. And that's our problem is we often put our eyes on the horizontal instead of the vertical. We need to look at who we are next to God. Person that is poor in spirit has been emptied of self Life isn't about me and my wants and my desires and my needs. The person that has been emptied of self-pride, arrogance, and self-will. The emptying happens before you get filled. 
Some people will say, I just can't get this filling with the Holy Spirit that these other people talk about, this joy. Where does this joy come from? Well, some people are too full of themselves to be full of God, right? And I know that from personal experience, man. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, or, you know. I'm the greatest example of somebody, uh, you know, that's full of themselves, right, by nature. This is a person that's come to the true awareness of their heart's corruption. Have you? This is a person that says with Isaiah, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm undone. This is a man who says with Peter, after he brings in the miraculous catch, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. Have you ever come to that place in your life where God has revealed to you the corruption of your heart, the utter spiritual bankruptcy, that you're just absolutely poor in spirit? Oh my gosh, Lord, I want to try to be good, but I can't. I am just so sinful. I'm so perverted. I'm so perverse. I'm corrupted. Have you ever come to that place, honestly? There's a reason that this one is first. Now listen. There's a promise that says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the opening verse right here, it's, it's so interesting what Jesus says. The opening verse, if you will allow God to show you who you are next to him, if you allow him to expose your sinful condition and you'll come to a place of being poor in spirit, salvation's yours. Until you come to that place, I'm not really sure. I can't find any biblical support to see that you could actually be saved because Jesus says, I came for the sick not for the self-righteous, right? Poor in spirit are those who have come to an understanding of their sinfulness and their personal need for a Savior. The next beatitude builds on the first, verse 4, those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What it does not mean, it's not talking about those mourning and sadness in general. It's often taught like that. Oh, you know, you're going through a loss in your life, I understand, but blessed are the mourning, you know, because they'll be comforted. It's not what this means, Right? If that is what it means, then it wouldn't be right for us, you know, it wouldn't be right that Jesus says that in the kingdom to come that every tear will be wiped away because if there's an inherent blessing in crying, why would we want to take that away, right? He's obviously not talking about sadness in general. He's not talking about those who grieve in general, although God does promise to be with those that are grieving in a special way. And if you've grieved a loss and if you've been through something terrible in life and the Lord's been your comforter, You've experienced something very, uh, you know. But there's no inherent blessing in grieving and being sad. In fact, there's a lot of people that deal with those things in a very sinful way, right? What he is talking about here is an intense mourning over our sin. An intense mourning over our sin. Not only my own sin, but the sin of the world around me. And that's what he's talking about. It starts off saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh my gosh, God, I thought I was doing pretty well until I had an encounter with you, until I had an encounter with holiness. I'm not doing that well. And the next thing is now is I'm mourning over my sin. I'm not trying to rationalize it. I'm not trying to say, oh, nobody's perfect. Oh, you know what? I made mistakes. Oh, I grew up in a household where I didn't have a good example. And oh, I had alcoholic parents or whatever the excuse is. It's you're done with all that. And you're saying, oh, God, I'm undone. I'm undone. It doesn't matter. It's I'm the one that's guilty. And now I'm starting to mourn over my sin. I'm starting to say, these were my choices. This is my sin. This was the stuff that I did wrong, and I'm mourning over it. And not only that, I open the newspaper, and I see the stuff that's going on, and I start to mourn over that. 
And I start to say, man, this sin is wreaking havoc in this world. It's terrible. My heart starts breaking for the very same things that break Jesus' heart. Now, in 2021, where we all have a phone and we all have the news coming at us 24 hours a day, it's very easy to get calloused and not even mourn over sin anymore, right? Like, it would not surprise me at all if I opened up my phone later today and saw that like 20 people got shot in some school. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Would it surprise you? Nobody would be surprised by that. Let me, let me give us all a warning. We are in a terribly calloused place. We are nothing like Christ, if that doesn't bother us. None of us in here, me included. If that doesn't make us weep what's going on in this world, we're nothing like Jesus Christ. Nothing. And so this is a reality check, isn't it? Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn over their own sin. You know, the person, here's the opposite. There are people that treat their own sin very, very casually. Not a big deal. It doesn't matter. You know, yeah, I hurt people. I just ask God for forgiveness. He forgives everything I do. Oh, I'm a stinker to my brothers or sisters. Oh, no problem. God forgive me. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Oh, I just told a little lie to my spouse or something or, you know, or whatever. I, not a big deal. God forgive. They're casual about sin. That's not a person that mourns over their sin, Right? A person that turns on the news and sees these things and it doesn't even affect their heart. You're in a bad place if that's the case with you. I understand it's tough. I mean, there's so many things. How do you care about every single thing without falling apart? Uh, maybe you've got to just turn the news off and deal with what you can deal with, right? One commentator says, to mourn is to care deeply, to know godly sorrow for sin, to be deeply concerned about the evil in the world, and to know the meaning of suffering because of the sin, injustice, and perversion in society. Now, also the person that's not mourning is the person that, you know, you ever, you ever watch TV or maybe you know people where it's just like they're into this, I used to watch that show I'm not even going to say I watch I don't even, I'm embarrassed they even watch it. But sometimes you turn on the TV and you see people like laughing hysterically about just like nothing. And they're, and they're just, life is just a joke to them. And it's all like, ah, you know, and like they're doing crazy practical jokes on people. And, and everybody's just laughing at nothing. And they're going on and, and acting like there's nothing else going on in this world except for their fun and their happiness. James addresses those people in chapter 4. He says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. See, there are people that are so engaged in the world and so engaged in like the entertainment of the world and so engaged in just, you know, watching their little programs on their phone and everything. And they're just not even paying attention to what's going on around them. And they're laughing and they're carrying on and have a good time. James says, you want to turn your laughter into gloom, right? Rather than, you know, laughing like nothing's happening, you ought to be mourning for, this, for the fact that so, many, so, so much bad stuff is happening to people. You know, Jesus was concerned about people, you know? But in 2021, we're, we're calloused. We've been bombarded with this stuff. It's terrible. I get convicted sometimes of just how little I am like Jesus. No. The promise is this, they shall be comforted. Now, the Christian that's not concerned about their sin will never experience this comfort because 
this comfort is that you've been forgiven of your sin, right? Until your conscience is affected by your sin, until you're, until you're like troubled deeply about your sin, you're poor in spirit, you're mourning, it doesn't matter that God forgives you of your sins, right? Like I would guess today that I could say, hey, good news, Jesus Christ forgives you of your sins. And some people in here are thinking, yeah, praise God, you know? And other people could sleep right through somebody saying that. doesn't even matter to them. It's because they've never been poor in spirit and never mourned over their sin. If it isn't the best news in the world that you can be forgiven of your sin, you don't understand. No. They should be comforted knowing that the sin is forgiven, the penalty is removed, that I'm daily being taken from the power of sin. It's being the, the power is being taken out of my life. And one day I'll be delivered from the altogether presence of sin when I'm in heaven. Those are reasons to celebrate right there. So aware of my poverty of spirit, then I start to mourn over my sin, which produces the next beatitude in life. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What it does not mean. Meekness is not weakness. It's not being a pushover. It's not being a doormat. It's not being spineless. It's not being a coward. It's not being dull. That's not what meekness is. What it does mean, the Greek word means this, not being overly impressed by a sense of my self-importance. That's what meekness is. It means to be gentle, to be humble, to be considerate. Now, the opposite of this is applauded in our world today, right? Have you ever noticed that? The world, the world like, in fact, when I was in sales, um, I went to a lot of different seminars and different sales trainings and stuff when I used to be in the real estate world. And, and you know, we get told a lot in this world to be aggressive and to step on people if you have to, to get what you need in life, you know, and, and to scratch your way to the top of the ladder. And, and who cares who you have to step on to get what you want? And the world is teaching us that it's all about me and my goals and no, nothing else matters. I'm going to get what I got to get in life. That's the opposite of what Jesus says. Jesus says that a meek person is one that's willing to let others get the blessings. They're willing to just lay down their rights. They don't have to chime in. And every time they get offended, you know, they don't have to make sure everybody knows, oh, I've been offended. All right. I don't think Jesus would be the best valedictorian, would he? All right get up at the graduation to make his speech, and they're like, okay, Jesus, bring a real motivational, just get him really going. My knee will not bow to any man, you know, get that sort of thing going. And he gets up there and he goes, hey, just, I just want you to be gentle and meek, and if people, you know, have offense against you, I just want you just to don't assert your rights, just be gentle and humble to them, and don't step on people to get where you want to go. And everybody's like, <laughs> come on, man, I wanted to get pepped up in the flesh here, you know, and you know, he's not going to do that, is he? Meekness, what it means with, I'm going to give you a couple of different aspects of the word meekness. First of all, what it means with respect to anger. Uh, an ancient Greek philosopher used to say that meekness is the balance between excessive anger and the inability to show anger at all, right? One commentator taking off on that says, a meek man is one who is angry on the right occasion with the right people at the right moment and for the right length of time. He goes on to say, because you say, okay, well, when's the right time? He goes on to say, it's never the right time when an injury or insult is done to us. Rather, it is anger over the injustice done to others. That's what meekness is. 
In other words, if, if you're stepping on my toes and you're offending me and you're doing things that are not right to me and I respond in anger, this commentator's saying, that's not meekness, right? He's saying meekness is being angry with the injustice that's being done to others, right? And that makes a lot of sense. Jesus was like that, wasn't he? These are people who suffer wrong without bitterness or desire for revenge. Blessed are the meek. Happy are the meek. Fulfilled are the meek. These are the people that are not always trying to assert their rights. Now meekness, that was with respect to anger. Here's meekness with respect to self-assertion. Um, it's not meekness. You know, meekness is not weakness, but rather power under control. Meekness is not weakness, but rather power under control, right? It's the opposite of being self-willed. It's a willingness to disregard my rights and my own privileges, are you thinking about these things? It's a willingness to disregard my own rights and my own privileges. Now, one of the things that's always so funny that you hear kids saying is you hear them saying, come on in. You hear them saying, uh, they say, that's not fair. You ever heard a kid say that? I mean, adults say the same thing too, right? Going around always telling people, that's not fair. That's not fair. I have the right to do this. I had the tablet first and they tried to take it from me. That's not fair. Well, listen, that's not meek. <laughs> Meekness is saying, look, even though I have the right to the thing, you know what? I'm, I'm willing not to engage. I'm willing not to make a big deal about me, right? Here's a good way to understand the word meek. Split it into two words. Me, ek. Being meek before men and women, that's being strong, but yet your power is under control. You're being humble. You're being gentle with people. You're not always chiming in every time somebody offends you or somebody's got it wrong and you need to set it right. That's not a meek person. Meekness is the opposite of being out of control and self-willed. This is the biggest stumbling block in a lot of people's walk with the Lord is being Self-willed, right? Reminds me of a dog I once knew. And uh, I used to go to this guy's house, my buddies and I. <laughs> we would go to this guy's house, and his name is Mike. And um, holy cow, he had a 160-pound Rottweiler named Razor. <laughs> And dude, like, I like dogs. Don't get me wrong. But this guy's house was like a one bedroom. And the living room was like a quarter of this room. And you'd go over there with friends. And you'd sit there, bless you. And Razor would be there. And you'd just be like, oh. And I, I remember sitting there just like, oh, my gosh, Razor's going to kill me, man. And uh uh, one time he came over and he's just got the, you know, Rottweiler jowls and they're all, and he's looking at me and I'm like, oh no, it's like, this is going to be it, you know? And he turns around and he sits on my foot and I'm like, oh no. And, uh, this dude could have mauled anybody at any time, right? But he didn't because he was meek. His will had been broken. And now he was totally submissive to his master. That's meekness. 
Back in Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron start speaking against Moses and they start to say, hey, we can do all the same stuff you can do. Who put you in charge, Moses? Moses doesn't say, hey, God called me to lead people out of, Israel, you know, out of Egypt. and into the, you know. He didn't do that. He let God handle it. Guess what God did? God handled it. Guys know the story? What happened to Miriam? Right? Well, she became leprous and it was a bad deal. But Moses didn't defend himself. Same thing happened again. Korah tries to rebel against Moses. Same thing. Who put you in charge? We can do the same thing. We're, we're priests. You know, we can do all this. Well, Moses, what did he do? He, the first thing Moses did was he fell on his face and he prayed to the Lord, right? Moses, Moses is like, wait a minute, I'm the leader and these guys are challenging my leadership. And the first thing he does is he falls on his face and he starts praying. He doesn't say, let me tell you, that's not fair, you know? He doesn't do anything like that. He lets God handle it. Here's, here's some wisdom that I picked up on that I haven't quite mastered yet. If you want to defend yourself, God will let you. But if you let God defend you, he will. But you need to be meek and not assert yourself. Be like Moses. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Another translation says that I am meek. It's the same word. Jesus was meek. Here's the promise. Look at it. They shall inherit the earth. Now, this is not a promise of material wealth, right? It is a promise for the future. We know that Christ is going to come back instead of his millennial reign is what it's called in the Bible. And um, we'll rule and reign with Christ is what it says. And the whole earth will be ours is what Jesus says. Now, there is a temporal blessing in this too. You know, a meek person is satisfied. They have a deep inner satisfaction because they're not always bothered about their rights getting stepped on and they don't think anybody owes them anything. So they're they have a satisfaction, and therefore, they're content with what they have. Now, to be content with what you have and not be in constant want, in a sense, is to inherit the earth. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians. He says, all things are ours, but we're possessing nothing, right? Because you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt, you mourn over your sin and that of the fallen world. Meekness is produced in you. You don't have to be constantly heard or constantly asserting yourself. Those are the first three Beatitudes. Here comes the fourth. This one's interesting. It has a promise in it. It's like, if you'll do this, then God will do this. And it's an amazing promise. Uh, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Remember the word blessed? Deeply, profoundly, spiritually, happy, joyful. Blessed are those who are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, the words hunger and thirst, I was thinking about these words and how we really don't have much appreciation for them today, right? When was the last time that you nearly starved to death, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? You know, I, I can tell. When was the last time that you almost died of thirst? Well, that was an everyday occurrence in the culture and the context where this verse is coming out of right? They're living in the desert. And even if you worked hard all day long, you couldn't even hardly make enough food to eat uh, to sustain your life. Uh, people didn't get fat in these days. We'll put it that way. It didn't happen. It, unless you were, you know, super, super wealthy, uh, you know, but it was not a common thing. It, uh, you know, people were, it's interesting, people are dying of starvation in this world. In our country, people are dying of the opposite, right? If you look at the number one killer among Americans and what it is. 
So we don't know much about this word, uh, these two words, hunger and thirst. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those words just bounce off of us. The last time I hungered, what did I do? I went to IV, got some probars with probiotics in them, ate it, good stuff. Thirst, just go drink a little bit of water. There's a water cooler out of there. Culligan brings it. This took on a whole different meaning to Jesus' audience, and we always have to understand the Bible in the context. Jesus said to people that knew a lot about hunger and thirst that hunger and thirst should be aimed at righteousness, right? What is righteousness? Well, first of all, more important than the hunger and thirst we have for food and water is the hunger and thirst that we all have for God, One church, uh, early church theologian, he put it this way. Here's his quote. He says, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What is righteousness? It's simply having a right relationship with God. Every single human is built with a hunger and thirst for a relationship with God. Now, if that isn't being satisfied by God today, it's being satisfied by something else. People are trying to get that satisfied by, maybe by work. Maybe they say, you know, the only place I feel really appreciated in life is at my job. I mean, I go home and family's not very cool to me. And so, but I go to work and I'm like the hero. And so I just want to work as much as I possibly can. And heck, it's good anyway, because I'm earning money. I'm supporting everybody. And, and so I'm going to try to find what makes for a meaningful life in my job. And people do that. People do that all the time. People will do it through friends. They'll say, you know, what makes a meaningful life is to have friends and popularity and have everybody like me. And so I have this restlessness inside of me. And so I think the way to have that you know, um, pacified and satisfied is through friends. And so, you know, I'm going to have all the friends. I'm going to be the most friendliest person I can be in the world. And um, so they try to have this restlessness, this hunger and this thirst met through friends. And they find out that that doesn't work. And then people try to do it through relationships. They think, well, man, if I could just get somebody to be with, I'm so lonely. Life will be complete when I have a spouse. Then it will truly be complete. And so this restlessness within them, they try to get that met from somebody of the opposite sex. Well, they find out quickly that their you know, spouse can't give them everything that they need. And so then they tear them apart and they destroy the marriage because this black hole in them isn't satisfied with God. It's trying to be satisfied with another person. <coughs> right? Everybody is born with restlessness, with hunger, and with thirst. Maybe you try to meet it through entertainment. You love Netflix and all that stuff. You'll sit there and rather than even watch a movie, you'll browse and look at the titles for three hours and you can't even commit to it because you think, really, this is supposed to deliver something way more than it is actually capable of delivering. It's because you're restless inside and you're hungry and you're thirsty and it's not being met in God. And there's a bunch of obvious ones. People are like, well, I'm restless inside, so I do drugs. It just makes me not as restless anymore. I drink or I have sex all the time with people and, you know, I'm empty and I just want love. And I think love is going to be the thing that satisfies me. So I give myself away to everybody and now I feel terrible about it. Life is filled with this. Okay, what Jesus is saying here, 
is that all of you have this restlessness, this hunger, and this thirst. But the reason you don't ever feel satisfied with anything in life is because that hunger and thirst needs to be for Him, for righteousness, for holiness, for the Word of God, for spirituality. Your hunger is meant to be satisfied by that. And here's the paradox of the whole thing. Jesus starts out by saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Well, here's, here's our problem. I just want the blessed. And so that becomes my top priority. Happiness becomes my top priority. And I start seeking the blessing rather than the blesser, right? And that's what all of, that's a lot of people's problem is today and why they're so empty is they're seeking just for the blessing. Jesus says, it's kind of this oxymoron. It's kind of a paradox. It's kind of like, you know, happiness comes as the byproduct of seeking Jesus, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God is what the Bible says. Now, if my heart, that hunger, that thirst that I have, if I direct that towards God, look at the promise that's here. They shall be what? Filled. Guarantee. If we did a poll in here or in Mason City right now, some of you are restless and some of you are filled. And the difference between the two is somebody's hungering after th and thirsting after righteousness and after Christ and somebody's hungering and thirsting after something else. That's it. God, he makes it so simple. But our hearts, man, they want all this other stuff and our minds play tricks on us. But Jesus cuts right through it. He says, you want to be deeply satisfied in life, seek him first. Quit trying to seek the blessings that he gives and seek him. And that's his message there. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Jesus, he dealt with this when he dealt with this woman at the well. You guys remember that story? Anybody know that? He goes up to this gal that's at the well about noon, and she should have been there in the morning. Why wasn't she? Well, she's ashamed, and she's trying to hide something. And Jesus comes up to her, and um, they start going, talking back and forth. And there's a well there that they're drinking water out of, right? And Jesus is going to use this as an illustration. And she says, um, you know, they go back and forth. And then Jesus comes up, and he puts his finger right on her problem right away. And he goes, hey, go get your husband. And then she goes, ah, you know, I don't, I don't have a husband. Jesus goes, you're right. You've had a bunch of husbands and the guy that you're living with right now is not your husband. The hunger and thirst that she had, she was trying to meet through men, right? So what does Jesus say to her? He says, look, and he looks at the well then. And he goes, you see this water? Now he's talking about the well water, the material water, but he's also talking about the men in her life. And she says, you, you keep trying to seek fulfillment through men in your life? You're going to be thirsty again. But he says, if you drink the water that I give you, this living water, you'll never thirst again. And she goes, oh, give me some of that living water. Amen. Right? Give me some of the living water. Because I'll tell you, the entertainment isn't doing it. The money's not doing it. The sex isn't doing it. The drugs aren't doing it. Nothing is doing it. The career's not doing it. The religion isn't doing it. The Holy Spirit does it through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can come in that today if you're aware of your poverty of spirit, you're mourning over your sin, and you're ready to let him in. You can come and drink. The Bible says, come, let them drink. Drink freely from Jesus Christ. You want to be deeply satisfied. That's how you get deeply satisfied. 
So giving up on all this other stuff and just going for him. Go for what satisfies. We're going to leave it there today. They shall be filled. <coughs> True happiness laid out by God himself. First of all, being aware that I have nothing to offer God in my salvation. I can't earn my way into a good relationship with God. I can't behave into heaven. It's not about me being a good person. It's not about me being religious. It's not about any of that stuff. None of my works are good enough to do anything. I'm absolutely spiritually bankrupt. I can be good for about a day, and then the perversion and twisted darkness of my heart and my flesh shows itself, and I have no problem admitting that, you know, because I'm poor in spirit. He's shown me, compared to him, nothing, not anywhere close. And I mourn over my sin because I see what it does to my own life. I see what it does to my wife. I see what it does to people around me that care about me. I hate my sin. I look at and see what the sin of the world's doing. You turn on the TV and you see that some guy killed kids or something like that. You know what I mean? And your heart breaks and you mourn over the things that Jesus mourns over. And that produces a meekness inside of you. How could I ever go around and be angry and assert myself and make sure nobody steps on my toes all the time when I see myself for who I really am? Right? And the good news is, is you've got a God that loves you. Even in that state, he loves you unconditionally. And he wants to take that deep desire that you have, that deep thirst and that hunger that you have, that restlessness, and he wants to meet that today. I know you're getting agitated here because you guys are all hungry and you want dessert master's uh, wares that he brings here. Now, let me tell you, there's nothing more important. And just this, this message is, is illustrating it. Your hunger and thirst ought to be after righteousness and ought to be after Jesus Christ more than it is anything else in this world. And if it is, you're going to find true happiness. And so you can make that choice. It's a choice of the will right now. So as we sing these next couple songs, maybe you can think about that. And I want to encourage everybody, don't get up and start moving tables and start doing any of that stuff. Keep your mind here and now while we sing these songs because the Lord's worthy of it. We're going to praise him and then we'll eat after that. But it is his desire to meet that restlessness in your life. And he wants to do that now. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the fact that you promised to meet the greatest need that we have. And we invite you to do that during this time. Lord, it's so overwhelming that even though we see ourselves next to you, and we cringe, but you still love us. <laughs> We're so unworthy, but still you love us. I pray, Father, for the restless soul here today that you would meet their need, that they would taste of the living water, that they would receive your spirit, Lord. And I pray for me, Father, the next time that I get restless, chasing after the wrong things, expecting things out of life that it doesn't give. God, remind me to come to you and drink. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>